Hello, welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Causey. I'm the lead pastor, and I am so glad that you are here today. We're kicking off a brand new series that I am so excited about. And to kick it off, I want to tell you a story about a couple. Uh, last week in South Korea, in a mall, uh, the South Korean couple was walking through the mall, and they came across this here. It was in the middle of the mall, and they saw on the floor a ton of different paint tubes and brushes, and over this entire wall, they thought because of the creativity of this mall that, wow, this must be one of those experiential things the mall's doing to try to engage people as South Korea is coming out of the pandemic. In fact, this mall has thrown really large events trying to get people's attention because like so many um, industries in this nation, retail has been impacted in that one as well. And so the couple picks up a couple paint tubes and in the course of um, painting, they're apprehended. Turns out that the three marks that they had begun to paint on this wall of graffiti was in fact defacing a painting that is estimated to be somewhere uh, between $450,000 and $600,000. This couple defaced a painting that's worth almost half a million dollars because they thought they could. When they were approached, uh, they thought it was, well, sorry, we thought this was like a participatory thing, like people had just been coming and smearing paint on the wall, and we were... That's what we were supposed to do. And as a result of what they thought, this couple will have to shell out close to $10,000 to repair the damage that they've done to this piece of artwork the mall had installed as this visual kind of image to help people as they're transitioning. This really expensive piece of art to get people in the door. And it's interesting, this couple thought they could paint it. And in the course of that thought, they're eventually going to end up in a trial where they could suffer $10,000 in damage. And as I was working on this series, kind of preparing for where we're going to be over the next four weeks, I felt like this couple is a perfect illustration of what we want to talk about, and what we want to push through, and what we want to see scripturally um, in the course of this month. In fact, the series is called Winning the War in your mind. That couple thought they could and they did. See, the life that we live is a reflection of the thoughts that we have. That what comes into our mind doesn't stay there. If we're not careful, it comes out into our life through what we say and through what we do. In fact, it's terrifying to think this, but as many people have said it, our lives are moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. The thought that you have the most is the thought that you'll eventually see in your life. And this realization that our, our lives are moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts should give us a little bit of pause. Because that means, like this imagery and like this wording communicates, that most of life's battles are won or lost in our mind. And because of that reality, it shouldn't be a surprise that God has a lot to say about our thought life. It shouldn't be surprising that in the New Testament letters, 
um, predominantly written by Paul the Apostle, that there's a lot to say about how we think. For example, in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, Paul, in a section dialoguing around a, a difficult topic they're dealing with, um, with some di- division, disunity inside of the church there, he makes the point that we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Every single thought, he says, we try to make sure it's in obedience to Christ and truth. In Colossians 3.10, he says, having put on the new self, which is being renewed in what? The knowledge in the image of Christ. And then he says in Romans 12 too, that do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. Paul seems to understand something that's fundamentally shaping our life, and it's our thought life. And that Paul, as he's writing, and you have to realize is that most of the New Testament churches in the early days, they didn't have this book that we now have called the Bible. It was mainly, uh, they had what we would call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. But most of the New Testament letters uh, hadn't fully circulated yet. They started off as writings from Paul, who had started the church, who had spread the message, who had established the leaders in that community. Paul would then, after he transitioned, he would write them letters to continue to help them grow in their faith to work through some of the implications of this new thing that they had experienced. That oftentimes, Paul would show up, and in the midst of him showing up, there would be these wow moments. Lives would be transformed. Um, Miracles would happen. There was just a lot of wow. But Paul wasn't sufficient. Paul wasn't okay with just giving them the wow. He wanted them to know how Christianity worked too. And so... What we get when we start to kind of look through the New Testament letters is you can kind of start to see some major themes that Paul says, okay, I want everybody to be aware of this issue. I want everyone to think through or understand this principle because of what its effect is on your life. And the issue of the thought life is one of the things that Paul hits in multiple letters to multiple churches because it seems to be something he's generally concerned about in the Christian life which is why we see him in yet another letter write these words. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in what? The attitude of your minds. And to put on the new self, created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. And then this letter to Ephesus that we call Ephesians in verse 2. I mean, in chapter 4, verse 22 through 24, we see Paul writing to a group of people who had not grown up in church. They had not been exposed to Christian teachings, Christian doctrine. Many of them had not even been exposed to Judaism and the fundamental doctrinal kind of theological framework that Christianity stands on. They had none of that. And so Paul spends a lot of time in Ephesus making sure that they're being developed, that they understand the Christian faith, they understand the how to the wow of what God had done. And over the course of his time with them, he reminds them, you were taught. He's like, hey, I spent considerable amounts of time with you teaching you this because I understood this is not the default. I had to teach you. 
It had to be taught. And often what has to be taught is different than what's the default. So he knows something about the default of us. He knows something about the power of thoughts in our life. Right? Because if you think you can't, you probably won't. If you think you can, you probably will. If you dwell on the problem, if you ruminate about that relationship issue, guess what? You're going to keep seeing it. If you think about the solutions, you'll probably find one. If you think you're a victim, you'll probably become one. And if you think you're a failure, you're probably going to fail. Right? If you think you're stupid, then you're probably going to give up when it gets intellectually hard. See, this isn't just some theological big idea. This affects every area of our life. Every area of our life is shaped by the thoughts we have about those lives. And think about the, the narratives that get inside of our head. There are, there are things you think about other people and what they think about you that they've never said to you. But you're convinced, well, they're not really my friends. They, they don't even like me. Have they ever said that to you? What if they said the opposite of that to you? But a narrative so powerful is that even when they've said something to you, if you think the opposite, you're going to go with it. In fact, if we don't even recognize that oftentimes those things are playing out in our lives, I don't have to have this conversation to know that most of you, all of you, you want your life to be positive. You want your life to be filled with peace and truth. And yet, it's impossible to experience a positive life with a negative mind. Right? You've never met someone who is completely negative in their outlook, who's always optimistic and positive. Some of us, though, our default to negativity is one of the reasons we have trouble with relationships. For some of us, our default to anxiety is why we don't experience peace in our life. And Paul comes along and he says, you were taught because there is a default that you have to become aware of. The narratives that are stuck inside of us, driving us, shaping how we see the world around us. And it's oftentimes not even obvious to anyone. Many people maybe would even look at you and say, wow, they're so successful. Wow, they're so together. Their life is complete. Look at their, you know, everyone sees the Instagram photos of each other's lives. A happy couple, a smiling family, an exotic vacation. But they're lies. Because on the inside, many of us don't feel like that. We feel like a horrible parent. We have tension and frustration in our relationships. And some of us, let's just be real, some of us say things to ourselves that we would never let someone else say to us out loud. Some of us say things inside of our head about ourselves that we would think someone is crazy if they said it about us on the outside. Some of us would punch 
people in the face if they said the things that you think about your children or you think about your spouse. But the problem with this default is that we will say things we would never allow anyone else to say because we fundamentally trust what goes through our brain. And this is where Paul puts the focus. He says you need a whole new attitude in your mind. Throughout the variety of passages, you need to think new. You need to think differently. If you want a different life, you've got to think differently. Because the default is not to to question what goes through our minds. The default is not to really make sure what we're what's flying in our head is true. We just trust that it's true. One of the best things that you can do is become a little bit more skeptical of what you hear inside of your mind. Some of one of the best things that we can do is become a little bit more cautious about what we just rubber stamp when we say, yep, that's right. But as someone who suffers with OCD, this is my struggle every single day, and I am so grateful for my OCD. 20 years ago, it about killed me. But 20 years later, because of my faith, because of what God has done through my faith and, and bringing me, making me aware of the thoughts that are inside of there, I am more mentally healthy than I've ever been my entire life while simultaneously struggling with the disease that I wake up with every single day in my thought life. Because I recognize not everything that goes through my head is even true. Not everything I think about what you think about me is true. Not everything I think about what I'm going through is true. I know that there is an insane man living inside of my head. And I may not have the power to make him shut up, but I do have the power to whether or not I choose to listen and agree. And that what Paul understood about us is what sociologically, neurologically, people are just finally starting to attune to. Right? Over the last four or five years, specifically in the last few years, there's been a, a heightened attention around fake news and misinformation. And you could be kind of drawn into this notion that fake news isn't something that we've always struggled with, right? If you were a child of the 80s or 90s, fake news wasn't an issue for you. But now fake news is everywhere. But see, here's the thing. What Paul understood is fake news is not new. It's a really old problem that comes from me and you. Because we have a tendency to believe fake news in our own heads. We have a tendency to accept misinformation. Look, it's been all over people's faces ever since the beginning when we walked out of that garden. It's not new on your Facebook feed. We have a tendency to believe lies and to accept them as true. And when our lives move in the direction of our strongest thoughts, then it's no surprise that we struggle with fake news in other places because we've got so good accepting fake news in this place and in this place. 
This is why Paul is so intentional about winning the war in your mind, becoming aware that there's a default there, and being intentional about putting on the attitude. You notice the verbs in all of those passages. All of those passages have this action-oriented. They have this, this tendency, this call to you have to be intentional. You have to put on the, the new. You have to take off the old. You have to renew your mind. All of this invites me and you into the process of being made new. I've been reading this incredibly fascinating and terrifying book um, over the last week. Um, it's written, the, the whole book is really chronicling the rise of cyber warfare. And, and it highlights through the book the history of cyber warfare and how different nations and individuals have engaged in it. And as it's sharing these stories, I'm frequently having these moments of like, this is how the world ends. Like, oh my goodness, this is terrifying. Not really like apocalyptic kind of world end, but you're like, this is how nations fall. It's telling a story about in Ukraine around a celebration of this significant day, and all of a sudden all the power in the, in the whole region goes out. For six hours, it's cold, and no one can flip any switch on. There's no electricity period. The reason is because Russian hackers had inserted a virus into the software running the electrical grid. In Florida, just in the, this last year, they discovered that there was a whole series of virus and malware that had been introduced into a system that had it been activated could have caused people to die have gotten really sick in Florida, that somebody had begun tinkering with the software that determines how much gets put inside of the drinking water. And what Paul understood, and what's at the core of the Christian faith, is that the software, the virus, is a brilliant illustration of the fundamental flaw, the fundamental challenge you and I have. The reason we default to lies, the reason we believe fake news is because our software has a virus too. Our operating system has become corrupt as well. And because of that insidious software buried deep inside of us, it affects the hardware. Right? In that book, it talks about how Israel and the U.S., created what eventually would become known as Stuxnet, which was this incredibly terrifying and brilliant virus that es essentially made its way to Iranian centrifuges that was used to kind of enrich uranium. And the viruses would cause these centrifuges to sprint, to spin really, really fast, and then to abruptly break and to stop. And by doing that over a series of months, it began to destroy these centrifuges and make it look like equipment failure. And on one hand, you may look at that and say that was a military, that was a national genius thought to stop a country from further enriching uranium into a nuclear grade. But the problem is, is that virus got out. And it began to creep around the entire world. It began to infect other machines that had a similar operating system. And what happened 
with Stuxnet and Iran and the virus that spread all around the world or the numerous times that you've seen on the news of viruses spreading was the same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. A virus was introduced that infected the software of humankind and it's continued to spread for thousands of years around the world. It's why when you read ancient literature, the human beings in those stories, they may not wear what you wear, they may not text the way you text, they may not watch TV, but they seem to struggle with the exact same problems you and I do. It's because what the Bible understands fundamentally is that the human beings that we all are, every letter that I've put up here written by Paul, are all things you and I struggle with, even though they were written 2,000 years ago. And it's because the software in our system has been damaged and corrupted. And that no amount of reworking the hardware, no amount of changing the circumstances and the situation around the hardware is going to change the virus inside the software. And so what do you do? You do exactly in the software world what we see Jesus do in our world. In fact, Paul's letter, he says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Throughout those New Testament letters, there's, there's another thought that Paul frequently comes back to that's even a greater, more powerful thought than our thought life. See, what Paul understood, I didn't click until roughly 2001. I'm at that point, I'm in the darkest place with my OCD, and um, I finally am seeing a doctor for it. Because like many people who struggle with mental illness, it's one thing to struggle with diabetes, but for whatever reason in our society, it's, it feels wrong if you struggle with mental illness. It can be okay if you've got a broke leg, but if your brain is broke, if you're dealing with anxiety or depression, you feel like you can't talk about it. But I got to a point where it was so dark for me, I finally walked into a doctor's office and I sat down because I was desperate. And I'm sitting across from this guy and he looks at me and he's like, oh yeah, this is, this is clinical, man, this is so recognizable. Um, you've got OCD, let's talk about how we're going to deal with it. And, and he hands me a little bookmark. He's like, I want you to, um, I want you every day, after you get up and you get dressed, I want you to stand in front of the mirror I want you to read this bookmark to yourself while you're looking at yourself. Kind of hold it up. I am special. I am loved. I am somebody. You are stupid. And the, the you are stupid was not in the bookmark. The you are stupid was what I was thinking about the guy who I was giving money to to tell me how to fix this problem. And I'm like, dude, my problem is this thing up here, and you're telling me to stand in front of my mirror every single day and essentially act out an SNL skit? Like, gosh darn it, people like me. I'm special, right? Like, this is the dumbest advice I've ever heard. Are you, do you have a degree in this? Like, you went to school to tell people like me this is what they should do to fix this destructive thing in their life. 
Again, I'm not knocking mental health professionals. I know, I know some. They're brilliant at what they do. But this guy, he completely missed it for me. Because I didn't believe any of those things were true. So no amount of standing in front of a mirror was going to make it true for me. And fortunately for me, that summer, I started bumping up against some Christians. And I started bumping up against Christian teaching. And eventually I bumped up against the one that's at the core of what Paul is saying here. This realization that fundamentally, besides my brain issues, right? My OCD, that's a hardware problem. But that summer I discovered it wasn't my OCD that was killing me. It wasn't the hardware. The hardware was a little jacked up, but what was really messed up was the software inside. And that, that had to change. And what I discovered at the core of the Christian faith is a God who came and in the course of his crucifixion and his resurrection in ways that I am still 20 years in, still appreciating and growing in my own understanding of, that he introduced a new software that is capable of being put inside of any of us, one that transforms us from the inside out, one that actually, regardless of how old you may feel, can make you new within. And, and maybe that sounds all kind of broad and theological and profound, and you're like, look, this is way too early for me to think about this, or I'm not even sure I believe this stuff. But I think you get it if we look at it from a different angle. So I turn 40 next month, and I've noticed this tendency inside of me. Um, I still feel really young on the inside. When I see people do stuff, when I see some young kid do something, I'm like, I could do that. Everything inside of me feels like I can still do that. And yet, what I've found oftentimes, if I were to um, maybe challenge my 20-year-old brother um, to a game of basketball, is that the next day, he feels okay. I feel like I got beat by a whole angry team of, like, like ravenous crazies with rubber hoses, right? Like, I just... Parts I didn't know could hurt, hurt. Muscle pieces I didn't know were there feel sore. And yes, I understand I'm out of shape, but it goes beyond that. It's like the hardware of my body runs at a different pace than the software of my soul. It still feels young. It still feels the same age it's always felt. And when you spend enough time talking to people, even in the later years of their life, you find that's still true. When I'm 60, when I'm 70, I think I'm still going to feel as young as I feel right now that still felt as young when I was 20 or 18, even if this thing doesn't. And what you and I, when we make those kind of comments or my body just doesn't respond the way it used to, we, we're intuitively saying, but my soul still does, is we're recognizing this hardware-software difference, this physical body and this spiritual soul. And when Paul talks through the old becoming new, he's not talking about the hardware being made new. He's talking about the software of our soul being completely made new. That being transformed. And when you think about that, and you think about the afterlife around this Christian theology that we live somewhere forever, 
Well, if you have a perfect body and you inject a perfect body, let's say God creates this perfect body in heaven, but you take our same software with its virus, with its default to lies and default to selfishness and our default to fill in the blank, and you inject it inside that hardware, guess what? That hardware isn't perfect anymore. And that's why we have to be made new on the inside before this gets made new on the outside. That's what death is. It's the uploading of the software into a new body, a new hardware forever somewhere. And this is what Jesus has done. And hopefully that helps you kind of wrap your mind around it. One of the things I do when I take people through the 112 is I really want to make sure they understand what it is at the core of the Christian faith that is the good news. And people will say, well, I used to struggle with these things, but now that I'm a Christian, I'm still, I've still got an issue. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me give you one more illustration. This is how I close. Um, one of the things in the 112 that I'll often do is I'll show a picture of a destruction derby car. And I'll say, this is what my life looked like. And it's a car that's been completely beat up. It's damaged. You know, it's got these dents. And I said, that was me before I met Jesus, before I began to follow him and became a Christian. And then the same image. That was me after I became a Christian, after I started following Jesus. The car hasn't changed. This body is still the same. It's still there. But what's different? And then I put a picture of a new driver. I said the driver changed. It used to be the old me that was reckless, that was hell-bent in the way I drove it, and my tendencies to kind of ram and push and drive way too fast means that it's got a little bit of a tendency to pull left. It sputters a little bit more than it should. And now there's a new me getting inside of this old car that's been driven a certain way for so long, a neurological pathways that are very efficient at doing the wrong things. And that is oftentimes one of the first frustrations that people who become Christians feel. And I love having those conversations because one of the things I get to explain to them is like, no, that's a cause of celebration. You used to never struggle with telling a lie to protect your image. You used to never struggle turning to a bottle or a pill or pornography to make you feel better on the inside. But now, something inside of you hates it. Something inside of you doesn't want to go that way, even if you go that way. That's really good news. It's because the driver inside of you is brand new. And it doesn't want to do that anymore. And so, yeah, you're going to have to spend a season of learning how to drive a car. I don't know if your car's ever been out of alignment. I used to have a car that was horribly out of alignment. And my, like, forearm would burn after I've driven it for long distances because I was constantly having to kind of keep a torque on the steering wheel because of its tendency to do this. And for some of us, that's what the Christian life looks like early on. It's because for the first time ever, we're fighting the pull of the hardware. So when I became a Christian... My OCD stayed, but for the first time, the person, that software upgrade that I had, that new me on the inside, recognized lies that it never recognized before. And this is me oftentimes every single day driving. I'm, I'm, I have to recognize that my tendency is to pull left. My tendency is to be negative. My tendency is to be cynical. My, my tendency is to assume the worst about people. 
But now, because I recognize it's there, I'm actually beginning to fight against it, knowing that who I am on the inside is not the same me I used to be. And that first critical understanding that Paul points out, that put on the new self, that live out of that new self, that act out of that new self, that new software, that ultimately that sets the stage for us winning the war in our mind. And to help you kind of jumpstart what we want to have the conversation the rest of the month, I want to give you a couple of questions, some evaluations. Because over the next few weeks, we'll talk about how. But I wanted us to recognize the wow that puts us in the position to best leverage and to be successful in the how. But you do have one action step. And it's to begin to become aware of the thoughts that are up there. To become aware of the tendencies in our mind. And to do so, I want to give you a... The first question isn't a question. It's an audit. If you were to rate your mind, your thought life, there's just two examples. On a spectrum of worried to peaceful, where would you put yourself? What's your tendency? Is it to be a two or a three kind of consistently anxious? Is it a one that you're always anxious, you're always worried, you always see the negative, you always see what could happen that's wrong? Or are you over here? You're peaceful. Peaceful doesn't mean that you are apathetic. You're like, whatever. That's not peaceful. That's called apathy. There's a difference. Peaceful means that even in the midst of the storm, you still are okay. Peaceful means that you recognize when you wake up at 2 a.m. in the morning and you can't sleep, God's awake. And he's there and he's present, ready to hear your cares and help you fall back to sleep. Peaceful doesn't mean an absence of conflict. It means that you don't become in, inwardly kind of in a state of panic because of the conflict. And then if you were to rate your kind of your thought life negative to a spectrum of positive, where would you put yourself on a scale of 1 to 10? Do you constantly struggle with negative thoughts when someone brings up an idea? Do you have the three reasons it's the worst idea you've ever heard and the fourth reason it won't work? When your kids throw out something, do you have a tendency to kind of point out all the dumb parts of the idea? Or do you skew towards positive? When people say something that's even stupid, you still see the stupidity, but you also maybe see that there's something going on there that you're able to call out and even help them get past the, the dumb things. It doesn't mean negative and positive doesn't mean you don't see problems. It means that you're more solution-oriented. You can't solve a problem you don't see. But you can't find a solution if the problem is all you can see. So where would you rate yourself? Negative, positive, scale 1 to 10. But maybe this isn't it for you. Maybe your thought audit needs to be something else. Maybe it's unpure thoughts, pure thoughts, and you fill in the blank with what that is. But we have to begin with the thought audit. And when we do the thought audit, we're honest with ourselves, it sets us up to ask this question. If our lives are moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts, where are you headed? If your thoughts are your trajectory, where is it taking you? And then finally, what thought, just pick one, what thought 
do you need to begin to rethink? Maybe out of all that auditing, out of all that reflection around your thought life, maybe just pick one. And next week, bring that one to the next one in this series so that we collectively can begin to win the war in our minds. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy, your truth, for the way that you make us new, for the way that you, from that software reborn inside of us, that you carry us into new places. Thank you for that in my life, for the victory that I see in my life because of what you've done. God, thank you that even today, there are people who need to understand and to hear the good news that they can be made new because of you. And I pray even in this moment in their hearts that they would simply say, God, I'm so sorry. I'm so done with the old, with the default. I need to be taught. I want to be made new in you, Jesus. Come into my life. Step me into that direction, Jesus, and make me new in you. And we pray all of these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.